0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So 1 John chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit's whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So when John is, you know, John's writing this, uh, I don't know exact year when he wrote this uh, this epistle, but it's towards the end of the first century. And uh, he says there are many prophets have gone out into the world. So obviously, He's speaking about literally in John's day, you know, he's speaking to these believers. Um, So obviously there were false prophets that had gone out in his day. But the verb tense is, uh, again, and I'm not an expert on this, but it's a perfect active indicative, which means that false prophets are always going out. It's kind of what that the tense of that verb is. And uh, and so not only in John's day were false prophets there, deceiving people, but it's in our day as well, and all down through history. Jesus warned about the last days before his return, right? We, we've read about it. We were in Matthew chapter, well, we were in Matthew through quite a while on Wednesday evenings. Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, Jesus says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So there's this deception that's going to be rampant in the last days, and there's a deception, I mean, it's even continuing now. Paul warned about a great apostasy, which is called the falling away, um, in the last days before the Antichrist, who's a person, is going to be revealed. It's in Second Thessalonians 2.3. He says let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. So there's this individual, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, but there's this individual who will be the embodiment, the Antichrist himself. Um, But before he shows up on the scene, Paul says, there's going to be this great falling away. And so you you can't fall away from a place if you haven't been there. So what I'm getting at is it's believers that are going to be falling away. Uh, People that are in church are going to be falling away um, from their faith. 2 Thessalonians 2.9, later on in that same chapter, uh, Paul says, The coming of the lawless one, it's another term for the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So there's this deception that's going to be accompanied with this. Um, And then Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So from John's day, there was false prophets, That arose, false teachers, false prophets, seeking to deceive the the believers, and it's continued all through history. But Jesus and Paul both say, "Hey, towards the end days, it's going to be even more widespread." So I believe we're very close to the, to the return of Jesus Christ. And so we are in a time where it's probably even more, uh, this is more pertinent for you and I as believers because of the false teachings and false prophets that are in the world today. And so John here, he warns, do not believe every spirit. You know, someone may sound spiritual, they may have all the spiritual lingo. They they just, you know, they they may everything about them, they just exudes, man. This is a real spiritual person or a real spiritual ministry. It may even be accompanied with miraculous signs and wonders. I mean, look what's happening here. It's a miracle of it's got to be of God because look at this. Um, you know, unfortunately, I think Christians sometimes unfortunately are very gullible when it comes to spiritual deception, especially when it 's accompanied with signs and wonders it 's very easy to get to get uh, misled by that paul um, you know, he was uh, on his way to Jerusalem and he stopped and spoke with the elders at Ephesus. He had spent a, a great deal of time ministering at Ephesus and he was speaking to the elders there in Acts 20. And in verse 29, he says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So it's not even just out there, but even in churches. There are people that are going to rise up trying to pull people to themselves. So if something feels or sounds spiritual, even if there's a manifestation of miraculous power associated with something, it does not mean that it's from the Spirit of God. It doesn't mean that it's from the Spirit of God. Don't be gullible. Don't be deceived. Not every spirit, spirit and spiritual experience or manifestation is of God. And so Paul says, don't believe the spirits, but test the spirits, whether they are from God. So how do we test? What is the test? Well, he continues here in verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So there's the test. Every spirit that confesses what? Jesus Christ. When it refers to Christ, the word Christ, it really means the anointed Messiah. So every spirit that can, and that's basically speaking about uh, his, his role, his position is deity, Jesus being uh, God himself, um, part of the Trinity, the triune nature of God, the three persons, Christ the anointed Messiah. So it speaks of his deity, but, he, but that he has come in the flesh. And, of course, that speaks of his humanity. In other words, here's the test. If anyone in any way denies or minimizes either the divinity or the humanity of Jesus the spirit behind that false prophet or false teacher is not of God if they diminish in any way the deity or the humanity of Jesus Christ now in John's day people didn't have a problem with the deity of Jesus Christ I mean, it was so, his resurrection was so fresh and there were, there were eyewitnesses and everything. Nobody had a problem, or not many people had a problem with the deity of Jesus Christ. But there was a form of Gnostic teaching that arose during that day that denied the humanity of Jesus. They didn't deny his, his, his deity, but they said, well, there's no way God could have actually become a, a real human being. And of course, there's all these implications that, that you know, extrapolate from that concept that Jesus wasn't a man. And so in John's day, they didn't deny the deity, but they denied the humanity of Jesus. But in our day today, it's flipped around. But you know what's weird? Everything's flipped around in our day, isn't it? Everything that was once considered good is now evil, you know, and and everything that's evil or was evil is now, it's, it's promoted and celebrated. And The Bible warns, it says, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Man, we're in a day of woe right now. We are definitely are, but in our day, things are flipped around people don 't have any problem with the humanity of Jesus yeah, there was a historical Jesus, but they have a they have a problem with the they deny his um, <clears throat> excuse me his deity his divinity you know i, I don 't know if you ever have these uh, young guys that ride the bicycles that come to your house you know and and uh, they're, they look really nice and they they, they are very clean cut and you know the the Mormons, right? They come to your house and they they knock on the door and they they're very friendly. They're they're usually very nice people and you talk to them. and And I don't know if you ever just shut the door on them or stuff. I've done both. I've either just said I don't have time or or there have been times when I've talked to them. I remember one time I actually invited some into our house once years ago, but. Um, Anyways, uh, you talk to them and you go, yeah, well, you know, I'm a Christian. Oh, that's great. You know, we are too. Oh, okay. Um, I believe in Jesus that there's salvation through. Oh, we do too. You know, we believe in salvation through Jesus. Really? Well, you know, and there's a lot of people that don't know the word and they go, wow. They're one of us, you know, and then, so then they, they get caught up in that. Jehovah's Witnesses, too. Not too long ago, we had a group of Jehovah's Witnesses come to our door, and I was talking to them, they were kind of giving their spiel, and I, and I said, well, you know... I think you and I are on different planes and this was an older one with a younger guy and the older guys, well, uh, you know, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, it's your, how you believe in Jesus, you know, do you believe that he's the son of God and stuff? And anyways, we got down to the point where they're like, no, we don't believe Jesus is God. And I said, well, there's the difference. Cause I do, I believe the teach, Bible teaches that. So we're not on the same level field. So I can't really, you know, fellowship with you for that. Anyways. Um, Today people don't have a problem with the humanity of Jesus but they have a they do have a problem with his deity they deny his divinity. Um, you'll also hear in quotes biblical scholars that'll argue about the who's the real Jesus. In fact, PBS had a frontline documentary and here's a kind of a, an advertisement for it. it says how did Jesus of Nazareth become the Christ? of the tradition of the christian tradition so in other words there was a there was a a jesus a a historical jesus but how did he become the christ of the christian tradition and why did the early christian communities develop different theological images of jesus in her exciting book paula frederickson answers these questions by placing the various canonical images um, of jesus within their historical contexts Frontline discusses Jesus' ministry, the circumstances of his crucifixion, and the social and religious problems facing early churches. So it's like these these experts. They're like, "Well, who is the real Jesus?" In other words, well, we can't believe what the scriptures say about the Jesus that he's this fully God and fully man. So, so who is the real Jesus? That's what that's what you and I are encountering today in our culture. Um. And John says here, this is the spirit of Antichrist. Um, the spirit of Antichrist that, that denies the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. And really, it's becoming increasingly accepted to the point where I think, you know, as a culture, as, as, a, as a humanity, we're getting prepared for a person who's known as the Antichrist. So as you and I see things changing... We see our religious liberty is eroding. We see false teachers just, you know, you you look at them, they're like their ministries are huge and everything. You go, man, this is really alarming. And and, uh, it can be a cause for alarm. In fact, we should be cautious and we should be wary, but we shouldn't be frightened. Look at verse four. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I love that verse. The Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside you and inside I is greater than the God of this world. The God of this world would be Satan. And of course, any other lying, deceptive, evil spirit under Satan's dominion. So if you are of God, the Bible teaches you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you already, and if you've already overcome them. Peter says it this way. In 1 Peter 1.5, he says, we're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. As Christians, you know, we can get really, uh, you know, up in arms about the, the, the evil and the wickedness and the spiritual, evil spiritual things that are going on. But remember, Satan is only a created being. He's not like the evil opposite of Jesus. You know, he's not, he's not on the same level with Jesus. He's a created being. Jesus, of course, being the creator. And so Satan's power is limited. So, verse uh, 5 continues on. John says, They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So they are of the world. Who are they? The false teachers and the false prophets. And they speak as of the world, and of course the world listens to them. What 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 is he talking about? Well, they appeal to man's carnal nature, the flesh, and they avoid the issue of sin. And so, you know, the 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 phraseology or the or the things that they might say is, hey, you don't need a savior because you're not a sinner you know what is sin you know that's just that's just something that was passed on by your by your parents or by your judo judeo christian tradition or whatever you don't need a savior you're not a sinner or you don't need a savior you can earn your own righteousness or you don't need a savior because you're a god yourself i mean there's all these different it comes in all these different forms and the world hears them because wow it sounds good man I don't have. To, I'm not a sinner. I don't have to deal with it. You know, hey, I can earn my own righteousness. I'm God. You know, the, the, all these things that it appeals to our carnal, fleshly nature, and so the world listens to them because they speak their language. They speak what they want people want to believe about themselves, and that's also why some of these false teachers and false prophets have such large, if you want to call them, churches, but large followings. Why? Because they're scratching, itching ears. They're telling people what they want to hear. And so John says, but we are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. So the question that rises up is who are the we? Is he speaking about all of us? Well, in a sense, yes, because we, you know, we speak the same language we speak Christianese you know we we and we hear we 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 encourage one another and all that but that's not exactly what I think John is talking about who are the we that John is speaking about you know the Catholic Church and I don't mean to pick on them in particular but their stance is hey we're of God he who knows God hears us have you ever tried to witness to a, a Catholic person you know, they'll tell you. I mean, you can talk to them about, you know, why does the church teach this? And you might pull out some scripture and stuff. And it's happened to us. We've experienced this. They'll say, hey, I just let the priest interpret for me. I don't, I, don't need to, I don't need to figure that out. The priest will tell me. Because that's what the church has said. Hey, we're of God. Hear us. Cults say the same thing. We are of God, man. He who, if, if you know God, you're going to hear us. Because we know God. We're, you know, we are of God. So who are the we that John is referring to? I think he's referring to the apostles themselves. What they said and what they wrote have been preserved uh, for us in the scriptures. And they are the only ones that could actually claim apostolic authority. They're the ones that say, hey, we're of God, you know, listen to us. You know, someone starts minimizing the deity or the humanity of Jesus as revealed in scripture or... If they minimize the importance of scripture or they lead you away from scripture, you know that they're a cult and they don't have the Spirit of God. If they're tearing you, taking you away from that. I can't overemphasize the importance of Scripture. If someone would rather have you listen to them in place of Scripture, watch out. Watch out. You know, even Paul. Paul didn't just say, hey, listen to me. Just you don't need you don't need your Bibles. Just listen to me. I I I just speak for God, you know? No. He praised the Bereans. Why? Because they would listen to what Paul said and they go, Wow, that's pretty good. Very interesting. Then they go home and they open up their Bibles, what they had, their scriptures, and they would study the scriptures and go, Oh, wow. Yeah, I see right here what Paul is saying. I yeah, it's true. They were students of the word, they studied the word themselves to find out if it was really true what Paul said. They didn't just take Paul's word for it. Now, I know me, okay? I know myself. Um, I know, uh, you know, I feel good about what I teach. I, you know, I don't think I'm deceiving anybody. I'm certainly not trying to deceive anybody. You know, one of my prayers when I prepare Bible studies or Sunday mornings or Saturdays or whenever it is I'm preparing them, I pray, Lord, help me to rightly divide the word. Help me to, help me to represent you accurately to your people. I don't, I don't ever want to be in a place where I'm teaching something that God says, hey, that wasn't what I said. You know, that's a that's my fear. I, I, I So it's like, Lord, help me to rightly divide your word. I always pray that as I'm studying. But, you know, for me to tell you that this morning, don't take my word for what I'm saying here. Don't just say, oh, wow, that's pretty good. You know, be a Berean. Go home, open up your scriptures and go, I wonder if that's really true, what, what he was saying up there. Can I find it myself in scripture? That's what we should be doing. You know, that's what really drew Teresa and I to Calvary Chapel. There were other reasons, but one of the reasons, one of the big reasons, and it wasn't an infatuation with its founder, Chuck, who? <laughs> you know, it's like, I would heard him on the radio, but I didn't know that much about him. Uh, you know, it wasn't an infatuation with its founder. In fact, it wasn't even an infatuation with the movement, you know, ooh, the Calvary Chapel movement, you know, it's so, so awesome and stuff. You know what it was? It was the love for and the adherence to the whole counsel of God as revealed in Scripture because we had never experienced that before in any other church. I grew up in church and I never experienced that. Teresa did not grow up in church, but the church that we met in, they were a good church, you know, and they, 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 they loved the Lord and stuff, but they didn't teach the whole counsel of God. They were a little bit off in some areas. And we didn't realize that until we left that and got into Calvary Chapel and go, wow, the, the things that they taught, it really wasn't scriptural. But we didn't know that at the time. And so for, for us, man, that's what drew us into Calvary Chapel. That was the biggest thing, man. Just the love of the word and the simple teaching. It wasn't fancy. It was just simple. Um, we uh, last, uh, this uh, Friday actually, Teresa and I went to Red Wing. There's a new pastor who's, who's taken over Calvary Chapel, um, Red Wing. Not taken over, sounds bad, but he was, you know, he's leading it now. And uh, uh, anyways, I was talking with him, he and his wife, And uh, she was sharing how she went to her sister's church. She didn't say where or what church or anything, but I guess it's a very large church somewhere. Um, I'm thinking in California, but I don't know. Um, But she said, you know, it, it was huge. And they went into this church, and the pastor maybe spent about two, maybe spoke like one or two verses, and then the rest was like a motivational speech. That was it. And he goes, she goes, man. You just left there like like it 's just like you, you were hungry when you left you, you weren 't satisfied, and yet this place was packed out with people because they 're getting a pep talk you can 't go wrong adhering strictly to the Bible that was brought home to me once, and i don 't know how many of you remember Lynn and deb they were they were in our fellowship i 'm um, not going to say their last name because this is being recorded, but um, anyways. They were they were missionaries uh, to Indonesia and uh, one of the or to New Guinea and uh, one of the uh, one of the one time he told me he said you know it was interesting he said I was I'm, I'm this missionary for this denomination that they were part of and he said the natives would come up to me and say hey your denomination teaches this but the Bible says this what's the deal and it, it just it just it really challenged him wow so it, the importance of the scriptures I can't I can't overemphasize. I want to add some other thing to here, just a little, little extra credit or a little extra bonus thing or whatever. Second um, Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scriptures of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. I, to explain what I want to get across to you, I want to just give you a, a story. Um, we had a family that was part of our church years ago and uh, loved the Lord, solid Christians. I didn't have any, you know, there was no issues or anything like that. They were great people. And uh, one day, the guy came up to me, called me on a Saturday evening. He goes, hey, can I come over to your house? I'm like, yeah, sure. And he came over and really serious, and he spent about an hour um, going through trying to explain something that he had discovered in Scripture that nobody else knew. It was like, everybody's missed this. And his issue was he, he didn't believe in the Trinity of, of, of God. He only believed in Jesus and the Father, not the Holy Spirit. And so he went through all this stuff, and he was pulling out Scripture. And he was saying, but, but his point was, hey, Christians for the last 2,000 years have missed this. This is—I mean—they—they—they—they they, they, they didn't understand. This is a new revelation, and you know. Here's my take on that because you'll come across people who say, "Well, here's scripture," but and this is what it is, and and you know, it's this new revelation. It's this new way to look at it. Whatever. There's. A world full of Christians, I mean this we 're not the only ones here right there's a lot of Christians in our town there's Christians in the United States Christians worldwide and guess what? We all have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us if we 're true born again believers, right We all have the same spirit, the same discerning spirit inside of us and I know that there's Christians that have differing views on on differing things, but for the entire church body of Christians that are alive today and those that have been alive for 2,000 years to have missed something. The Holy Spirit didn't reveal it to any of them, but all of a sudden to one individual, hey, (laughs) I I just have a problem with that. I'm like, you know what? I I just, I, so I guess my point is, if someone comes up to you and goes, hey, you know, I have this new revelation of scripture, nobody else seen this. My word to you is just, you know, just be careful, be careful, be wary of it. Now, having said that, you look around even in our community, there are so many flavors of born-again believers in, in, our, in, in our community, right? They, they differ on a variety of things. They believe differently about different things. John's not addressing those differences. You know, I think a lot of those differences, to be honest with you, would go away if people would inductively study their Bibles. I really believe that. If they would study their Bibles in its entirety. Um, what do I mean by inductively studying I mean pulling out what the scripture says rather than reading into it because sometimes people will start with a preconceived idea I believe this and so I'm going to dig into scripture to find it and to prove it and guess what you know you'll probably will find some scripture that'll back up what you're saying by itself but inductively studying the Bible is, is looking at the context of when it was written, who it was written to, why it was written, you know, and, and looking, what does it say? Pulling it out and then, and out in context too, and then analyzing it with the entire body of Scripture, the entire counsel of God. Because Scripture will interpret Scripture. In fact, Scripture is the best um, uh, commentary on itself. And so I think a lot of the issues in different churches, I think, you know, they're not major issues, but I think a lot of issues would be, probably would be resolved if people would do that. But John's not addressing that. John is addressing how to discern between the spirit of God or the spirit of error. And that deals with the test is, are they minimizing or denying the deity in the, or in the humanity of Jesus? Are they drawing people towards scriptures or pulling people away from scriptures? You know, having said all that, though, you remember what Jesus said about the church. He said they'll know you, right? How will they know you? Well, they'll know you if you're orthodox and you're. I mean, if, you, if you've got it, if you got the truth down pat, they're going to know you. That's somebody he said. He said they'll know you by your love. And so we're going to switch gears here a little bit um, and go into the rest of this chapter. But think about this. You know, this is uh, John. You, you, if I don't, I didn't count how many times he's mentioned love in this letter. But uh, the guy who wrote this, the Apostle John, he was a young follower of Jesus. And at one time in his ministry, as as Jesus was was leading the disciples, um, John said this in Luke 9, verse 49. He says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade them because he does not follow us. In other words, man, they're not part of us, so we, you know, they're, they're, we forbid them. And Jesus said, don't forbid them, for he who is not against us is on our side. See, I think you know, we can get so wrapped up into the truth that we can major on the minors and minor on the majors. You know, what, what am I talking about? You know, the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. The, 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 the salvation by grace through faith. You know, those, those are the key things that Jesus is the only way. There is no other way to heaven except through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. Those are the major things. Let, let's, let's, let's major on those and not major on the minors. And some people get caught off, they get up, you know, get off into the weeds, um, get caught up in the minors. Here's another thing that John did. It's actually recorded in the same, same chapter in Luke. Um, they were going to a, a town in Samaria. And uh, the, the Samaritans didn't receive Jesus and the disciples. And John's like, hey, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven like Elijah did? You know, and, and of course, Jesus rebuked them. Um, in fact, Jesus gave James and John, they were brothers, the Sons of Thunder was their, their, uh, their nickname. Um, just because of. And th- this is the John, the young John, who's now an older man who's writing this about love. And so, verse 7, he says, Beloved... Let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now, you know what's unfortunate in our language is we have one word for love, right? Um, what kind of love, if I say I love something, you can infer maybe the depth or the type of love based on you know, the context that I use it. For example, I love dark chocolate. I don't know if anybody knows. I used to say I love chocolate, but i got to be careful because then people just give me chocolate. And it's like, well, I really love dark chocolate. But I love dark chocolate. That's not a hint for anybody. <laughs> I just know what happens sometimes. But I also love Teresa. Now, hopefully, you can gather in your brain that, you know, you can you can wrap your hands and you go, well, I think I, I think I understand that his love for Teresa is different than his love for dark chocolate. Hopefully, Teresa understands. <laughs> you know, it's just... <laughs> So, you know, there's only one word for love. And so, unfortunately, in the English language, it's just like, okay, well, okay, you need to explain, you know. The Greek language was different. They had different words for love. They had different words for different types of love. One of the words is storge, and that's familial love. If I storge, it, it, it basically, it talks about a parent-child love for each other, that, that family love for, for each other. That's storge. So if you hear the word storge, you know right away what they're talking about. There's another love. It's called eros. And it's the intimate love or the romantic love, the love of a husband and a wife. Again, you would, you, would, you, know, you would understand that. Then there's phileo love. That's brotherly love. That's based on a mutual friendship. You know, there's, a, there's, this, there's this give and take and stuff, and, and we, we both benefit each other, and, and it's just this brotherly love. Then there's agape love, and it's translated in the Bible, charity. But that's the highest form of love. And it actually is a willful decision to love unconditionally. That's really what it is. It's it's a, willful, it's a choice to love unconditionally. Whether, whether or not. So unconditionally means whether or not the recipient returns the love or whether they're worthy of the love. It's just, I'm going to love you. I'm, 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 I'm making a choice to love you unconditionally. Willfully doing it. And so when you look at this verse, verse 7, John says, beloved. And that word beloved is agape. I hope I don't mess it up, but agapetos. I'm not a Greek-speaking person, so hopefully it's close anyways. But it's what it means is, those who have experienced agape love. Those who have received that God, and it's God's love, right? It's God's willful decision to love you and I unconditionally. So those of us who have experienced that agape love, let us, agape, love one another. Let us do the same thing to one another. Let us make a choice to love someone unconditionally with no, you know, you gotta earn it first or whatever. Whatever or I'm expecting you to meet me halfway. That's not what agape love is. Agape love is just a willful decision to love unconditionally. And so those of us who have experienced that, that's what John's saying. Hey, beloved, you've been loved that way. Now let's love everybody else, or let's love one another that same way. He says, and then I'll just put it in other words here. He says, for willful and unconditional love is of God. And everyone who willfully and unconditionally loves is born of God and knows God. Now, I know that there are believers that, you know, uh, or uh, excuse me, there are people who are unbelievers, a husband and wife, and they unconditionally love each other and, and they're there for the long haul. And I know that humans are able to do that because we're all created in the image of God. However, I believe that a born-again believer, someone who's, re, who's regenerated, um, or excuse me, someone who's unregenerated, a person who's an unbeliever, is incapable of expressing that love to the fullest extent. They, they, they kind of can to its, but not to the fullest extent, as God has, uh, as it really means. Verse 80 says, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So God's willful, unconditional love was manifested toward us how? When, Jesus, or when God sent his only God and Son, Jesus Christ, to become the propitiation for our sins. That's a word we don't use too often, right? The propitiation. What does that mean? Well, the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. There's a, there's a blood sacrifice that has to be. Blood has to be shed to atone for sin. And the problem is sinful man is unable to provide that atonement to satisfy God's righteousness because man is sinful. And so what propitiation is, is basically it's basically, it's, it atones, it, it removes that wrath, that, that punishment um, that is willfully or rightfully on us. A propitiation is like, it's like atoning for the, for the wrong or for the sin. It's kind of, it's, there's, it's a bigger definition than that, but it's, a, it's one of these words that are just, you could spend a lot of time studying it. But anyway, so the problem is sinful man's unable to provide that atonement ourselves. And so what John is saying here is God sent his son to be the propitiator. In other words, the one who not only does the propitiation, you know, the high priest would offer the sacrifices in the Old Testament. So God sent his son to do the propitiator. He's our high priest, but he also provided himself as the propitiation. He's both the one who offers the atonement and he's the atonement himself for us. Because without Jesus' sacrifice, it would be impossible for you and I to enter into a relationship with the holy God. It's impossible. And yet God willfully and unconditionally sent his son. Because the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It, it, it's, that's that love. It, it, it didn't wait for us to respond. God didn't say, well, I want to wait till, you know, or I've gone this far and I want you to meet me halfway or you, uh, I'm going to wait until humanity is deserving of my love. No. He sent his son. While we were enemies of the cross, he sent his son to die on the cross for us. So if God has loved us in that way, we should love one another in the same way. Making a willful choice to love them. Loving them without setting conditions. In other words, you know, I'm not going to say, well, it's not until you meet my requirements or not until you prove to me that you're worthy of my love. That's, it's not an option for us to do that. And if you're here this morning... And you're unable to unconditionally love a brother or sister in the Lord. I mean, you could say we could love everybody, but you know what? Let's just, let's just bring it down to the church, to your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're unable to unconditionally love a brother or sister in the Lord in this manner, then you really need to pray and ask the Lord to show you how much he loved you and how he's given you his agape love, how much you didn't deserve his love. You know, um, I love the phrase, grace changes everything, because that is so true when we understand that we don't deserve God's love and, and his favor, and yet God pours it out on us. That's really what grace means. When, when we understand grace in our own lives, man, it changes the way you interact with everybody else around you. And it doesn't mean that once you extend that love that they're going to reciprocate. In fact, if it's a person that you're really having a difficult time with, they're probably that bad that they're not going to respond right? They're not, they're not going to go, oh, oh, you extended love to me. Well, not, well okay, now I'm going to, no. If they're really bad and you're having a hard time loving them, they're probably not even going to respond. They may not even know it, possibly. You may not get that in return, but look at how many people Christ died for, because he died for the sins of the entire world. How many people have just spurred him and rejected him, right? And yet that didn't change the fact that he went and died for them on the cross, it doesn't change the fact that Christ loved them and still loves them unconditionally. Verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. Nobody has physically seen God or even knows what he looks like other than what scriptures has revealed to us. However, when you and I agape love one another, willfully and unconditionally love one another, we provide the evidence that God dwells in us because that's God's nature. That's who God is. And it says, and God's love has been perfected in us. What do you mean perfected in us? Well, perfected in this context, it means to be completed or to reach its intended goal. So in other words, if we've experienced this agape love, God's love in us, then God is in us, he abides in us, and God's goal for you and I, the completion of it, is that we would extend that same love to others around us. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. You see, I am incapable of expressing agape love of my own. So are you. Even though we've experienced it, we're incapable of expressing it. It's the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us, who enables us to love someone unconditionally and willfully, to make that volition, that choice, I'm going to love you unconditionally. And referring back to the beginning here, if we have the Spirit of God in us, you know we're going to confess the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. Again, it goes back to that test. Verse 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Confess. What does confess mean? It means to confess publicly, to acknowledge openly, to profess. So if we acknowledge openly, if if we profess, if we confess publicly both the deity and and the humanity of Jesus Christ, as revealed to us through the apostles' teachings and scriptures, then we know that God abides in us, and we in him. You know, there's a lot of people, like I mentioned, the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, but there's other that'll acknowledge, uh, they'll acknowledge Jesus, but not the biblical Jesus. As part of my studying, I came across this church, out in california the 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 church is it's got the name agape i was just kind of googling agape and stuff and came across this church this this and it's apparently a very famous person who's been on oprah what i guess makes you famous and in different things but um i was looking at the it's agape church and it's it's like wow and and i'm kind of interested so i was kind of clicking in it and looking into it and getting down to the facts and 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 the, the one of the questions is, Are you Christian? And and the answer was yes and no. He says, Yes, in the sense that there's Christians that attend our church and stuff and and do this, but in the sense of do we believe in Jesus is the only way of salvation? No. I thought, Wow. And, and, again, this is a huge, huge popular church, apparently. What do they talk about? They, they, they have teachings, but it, they use teachings from Buddha's writing, Buddha's stuff, and, and Hindu and Christian and Jewish. And they bring all this stuff together, all the world's religions and stuff. And, and uh, so they would acknowledge what they called a Christ consciousness, that Jesus was this transcended, enlightened, enlightened being. Well, that's not confessing who Jesus is. Confessing who Jesus is is what the Bible says that Jesus is. That's how you know the spirit of God, the spirit of of error. So whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. It's just not simple enough to say, yeah, I believe in God. Or Jesus, you know, well, which God, which Jesus do you believe in? Verse 16, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love Uh, understand and fully grasp that we're undeserving of God's love; that we didn't earn it, we didn't, you know, arrive at it or achieve it in any way. Then we're also going to understand that since the origin of this love is from God, He will unconditionally, willfully love us. Right? If if we if we understand that that's what that love is, it's God willfully and unconditionally loved us. We didn't earn it. We didn't. We didn't uh, clean up our act, and now God loves us and stuff. When we understand God's unconditional love for us, it takes out fear from us. You know, it's like if, if God loved me in this way, I can't earn it, I didn't deserve it, then God's not going to take it away from me because it's based on him. It's not based on me or based on anything I've done. So here's basically what I would call the rub for you and I. Verse 20 If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. You and I, we can't do anything to unearn God's willful and unconditional love. That's why there's no fear. But is there anything that your brother or your sister in Christ can do to unearn or else, and not deserve your willful and unconditional love? That's that's a tough one to answer. That's the one. That's a, that's a tough thing for you and I to deal with, and that's why I say that's the rub of the scripture here. Because God's extended that love to us, we have to extend it to others. It's not an optional thing for us. And if you are struggling in that area, man, I just again, you need to just pray and say, Lord, just reveal to me how you love me in that way, so I can love that person. And in fact, it's impossible apart from God's Holy Spirit. You're not going to be able to do it unless God's Spirit enables you. And so, pray, ask the Holy Spirit to enable you to do it. You might say, "Well, it's even I can't even pray for that person." Well, you know what? You got to start somewhere. But just understand this: it's not an option for us. We can't say, "Well, they didn't. They they're so bad. They don't deserve it." No, they do deserve it. Or actually, no, they, you're right. They probably don't deserve it because none of us deserved it either, right? But that doesn't change it for us because. Praise God, He didn't change it for us, right? He, He loves us unconditionally, so we need to do the same. Why don't you uh, stand up? Let's go, to Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. And uh, Lord, I know that this is a difficult. Uh, it's a difficult concept, Lord, because the reality is we've we've all had someone or some at some time in our life who's. Uh, maybe just did us wrong or, or hurt us or harmed us in some way, or, or maybe we're at odds with someone even this morning and, and we're having a hard time, Lord, loving them willfully and unconditionally. Lord, you know our weakness, you know our frailty. Lord, I pray that as believers, Lord, you would do that transformation in our hearts, Lord, that we would begin to love them unconditionally. Lord, that we would make that willful choice to love. Lord, I pray for each and every person here, Lord. I pray that you would fill them with your spirit, Lord. Enable us to to love as you loved us, Lord God. We thank you for that reminder this morning. Lord, you have loved us in that way. May, May we love others the same way, Lord. Sacrificially, willfully, unconditionally. So I thank you for your church this morning. I thank you for each and every person here, Lord. And I pray that you would equip them by your spirit, Lord, to love others as you loved us. And so we thank you this morning. We bless you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.